Hey, y'all. Good evening. And good night. Or if you're just trying to get a good nap in, good day. Welcome back to Southern Sleep Stories, a podcast to help you reach a deep and satisfying snooze. I'll be helping you to do that. My name is Brandon, and I'm happy to be able to read you a nice bedtime story. If you're new to the podcast, I'll be giving you some relaxation techniques that will calm you. Then I'll read a chapter or two from a very old book that will take you deep into that sleep. Then slowly let the background noise fade to silence. Any ads or sponsorships that will support the show will play only after the intro and before the relaxation begins. This will help ensure there are no interruptions in your sleep. If you're a fan of true crime and would like to check out my other show, look up Music City 911 on any podcast app or YouTube. Let's make sure you're all set up for a great night's sleep. If you're listening on YouTube or a podcast app, turn off the setting for autoplay so you won't be woke by other sounds once the episode is over. Set the temperature in your house to the most comfortable for you. If you like sleeping with a fan on, turn it to your most desirable setting. Turn all your lights out. Turn your TV off. Make sure your room and surroundings are as silent as you can make them. Now crawl into bed. Make sure you're using your covers and pillow in the most comfy way possible. Now to start. Rid yourself of all your thoughts from the day. Anything bad or good that you have had happen during the day, let those fade away and instead concentrate only on these relaxation instructions. If you still have thoughts in your head, repeat slowly over and over for 10 seconds. Don't think. Don't think. Don't think. Now close your eyes. Take a breath in and slowly exhale. Let those previous thoughts leave your body as you exhale. Imagine yourself in the most calming and serene environment possible. Calm your body. Relax every part. I want you to start shutting down each part of your body from top to bottom. The top of your head and your forehead. Relax those muscles. Let yourself feel them change from tense to relaxed. 
relax your eyes. Do the same with your cheeks. Feel them fall as the tension leaves them. Now relax your jaw. Let your teeth slightly separate as you do this. Now let your shoulders drop as low as possible. And while doing that, let your arms, hands, and fingers all relax and loosen. Take another breath and think about your chest calming as you exhale slowly. Now relax your stomach, your legs, your knees, and your feet all the way down to your toes. Now that you're nice and relaxed, let's listen to another chapter from The Mighty Deep. Chapter 6, Rivers in the Sea. Actual rivers in the ocean, distinct streams of water flowing over a bed of water with banks of water. Not merely one or two such rivers, but scores of them, hundreds of them, great and small in all parts of the world. Chief, perhaps, in importance is the Gulf Stream, that vast flood which pours out of the Gulf of Mexico and acts as a winter heating apparatus for the west of Europe. Though by no means the largest of ocean streams, it is one of the most useful to man. After quitting the Gulf, it hurries at speed through the Straits of Florida, then spreads out into a river about 50 miles wide and over 2,000 feet deep, journeying at a rate of some 60 miles in 12 hours. For a while, it hugs the American coast, but, happily for Europe, it forsakes this friend of its youth and wanders to the northeastward across the Atlantic. To call it a river is no mere fiction of speech. Near Halifax, the separation between warm and cold water is so sharp that those on board a ship may know what latitude they have reached on entering or leaving the stream by simply dipping a bucket into the water and taking the temperature. Literally, the Gulf Stream is a warm river flowing over a bed of cold water with cold water banks. So far as Cape Hatteras, the stream clings to its early friend, and after that, the American coast knows it no more, being left to the mercies of a very different acquaintance. An icy stream flows southward from the far north, clinging to the coast of North America, while we in Western Europe benefit by the presence of the warm current which travels over to us. This stream has been described as forming a cold wall to the mild Gulf Stream. Fan-like, the Gulf Stream spreads as it journeys, growing gradually wider and wider, shallower and shallower, cooler and cooler, yet the last so slowly that 
even off the coast of Scotland, water 900 fathoms deep is found to be at 40 degrees Fahrenheit. How strongly this mass of warm water affects the air above it is well known to sailors. When passing from the stream to the outside ocean, or from the ocean to the stream, they often change in a few hours from a warm to a cool, or from a cool to a warm climate. The atmosphere is ever ready to tune its mood sympathetically to that of the ocean over which it sweeps. We know well in Great Britain that our soft southwest breezes seldom fail to bring us warmth, though we do not always remember the debt that we owe our friend the Gulf Stream. But for the immense stores of heat carried northward and given over to us, our island climate would be different indeed from what it is now. That is why our fellow subjects in eastern and central Canada, living no farther from the equator than we do ourselves, suffer from an intensity of cold in winter which we never endure. It is difficult to realize the parts of ice-bound Labrador and of Canada where the thermometer often drops to 40 below zero are no farther north than London and Paris while Newfoundland lies actually more to the south than Aaron's Green Isle. Turning to the Pacific Ocean, we find there a corresponding river, again flowing to the northeast, just as the Gulf Stream wanders across the Atlantic. So this river wanders over the Pacific, carrying stores of tropical warmth to opposite coasts. At its quickest, it is less rapid than the Gulf Stream and about three times as wide. It too, as it journeys, becomes gradually broader, shallower, slower, and colder. This Kurosivo, or Black Stream, so named from its dark color, flows outside Japan and then strikes freely for the northern coast of North America. And because of its work as a winter heating apparatus in Alaska, the hummingbird is found at a latitude which, on the other side of American continent, means not the play or whir of hummingbirds in a soft air, but the disporting of walruses among ice flows. As in the Atlantic, so in the Pacific, the warm northward traveling current is balanced by a cold southward traveling current. The Arctic stream of the Pacific is not so marked as that of the Atlantic, perhaps partly because of the much shallower outlet from the Arctic Ocean. Still, it is quite chilly enough in its effects upon the Siberian climate. Here again, the cold stream acts as a wall to the warm river flowing the other way. More reasons than one may help to explain why these two currents slant off to the eastward instead of pouring due north.
the shape of the various coastlines has something to do with it. Also, the presence of ridges and hollows in the ocean beds and the resistance of other contending currents. A river, either on land or in the sea, will always travel where it finds least opposition. One main cause, however, is the whirl of our Earth upon its axis. This which greatly affects the directions of prevailing winds alters also the lines followed by ocean rivers. A current starting from north near the equator for the north shares in the rapid rush of the Earth's surface, which at the equator spins eastward at a rate of about 1,000 miles per hour. As the volume of the water gets further north, it reaches parts of the Earth which are whirling more slowly, while it has not lost much of its own eastward whirl. A sideways flow is the result, changing the northward into a northeastward direction. But a stream starting from far north for the south is affected in the opposite way. Near the North Pole, the Earth's surface hardly moves at all, and the southward flowing current being weighted in northern inertia takes a contrary course to the current flowing north. It lags more and more behind the faster revolving surface, and so wanders westward instead of eastward. Or, if prevented by the land from so doing, it hugs the coast, which hinders it. So the pull of the great streams in the Atlantic is exactly opposed, each to the other. That of the Gulf Stream is towards the east, that of the Labrador Stream is towards the west, and the resolute manner in which the two refuse to mingle may be partly due to this fact. If our Earth could be made to change the present world from west to east, and to revolve instead from east to west, those two great currents would alter their directions. The Gulf Stream would hug the American coast, and the Labrador would find its way over to Europe. Then the British Isles in winter would know a temperature of 30 or 40 degrees below zero, and the Canadians would experience soft damp winters and moderate summers. Perhaps they would no more welcome the exchange than we would. Then, too, the black stream would cling to the Asiatic side, transforming the climate of western Siberia, and the cold Arctic river would put a speedy end to hummingbirds in Alaska. But abundance of ice flows would soon be awaiting the walruses, which would have to emigrate from the other side of the continent. A good deal of discussion has been held as to whether we do truly owe our mildness to the Gulf Stream alone, or whether that Gulf Stream is merely part of a general northward movement of the Atlantic waters from the tropics towards the pole. The question has been warmly contested, and no doubt on both sides, as generally is the case, truth has been mixed with error. 
the Gulf Stream cannot be viewed as a separate entity. Its very birth in the Gulf of Mexico depends on a great mass of water ever flowing from southeast into the Caribbean Sea. Since so much water pours in, the same volume must pour out. And as it does, so it gains the name of the Gulf Stream. But after quitting the Gulf of Mexico, the stream does not exist alone. It becomes a leading part of the North Atlantic circulation. The whole surface of the ocean is slowly turning round and round, whirling as if stirred in the direction of the hands of a watch. And the Gulf Stream occupies one side or more of this vast maelstrom. In the center of this revolving mass of water lies a district where the motion is slight, and at that center floats an enormous collection of drift and seaweed called the Sargasso Sea. Suppose we pour some water in a large basin, drop into it a handful of small leaves and chips, and make the whole spin gently with one hand. We shall then see how the chips and leaves will collect at the center and will float there, almost stationary. That is what happens on a large scale in the North Atlantic Ocean. Other oceans also have this steady circular movement, not of the whole body of water, but of the surface water down to a greater or less depth precisely how deep one cannot say it lessens gradually with increasing depth the same is found also in the south atlantic in the north and south pacific and doubtless in the indian ocean to find its direction at any part one need only lay a watch face upward upon a map of the northern atlantic or north pacific in both cases, the water travels round with the watch hands. In the South Atlantic and South Pacific, the flow was just in the opposite direction. So both the Gulf Stream and the Black Stream are merely parts of a big oceanic whirlpool. Each ocean on Earth has its own system of circulation, and that system is part of a worldwide system the waters are in perpetual and complicated motion. Streams pour incessantly hither and thither to north and south to east and west. Two vast streams known as the equatorial currents nominally pour around the world but really are best seen in the open Pacific where for long distances no land meddles with their career. They flow steadily westward, one to the north and one to the south of the equator. Between them flows a reverse stream called the equatorial countercurrent. If a certain amount of water travels north, an equal quantity must travel south. Or, if as in the case, so much water turns in a westerly direction, a corresponding amount has to run in an easterly direction. Water may be marvelously piled up here or there by influences of land or of water, but it cannot remain piled up without efforts on the part of the ocean to restore 
the equilibrium were the whole world covered by a single unbroken sheet of water, these drift currents might circle round and round the globe forever, undisturbed in their working. But the earth has lands as well as oceans, and when a current strikes a coast, its course is altered, part at least being turned in a fresh direction. Much discussion has taken place about the causes which bring these great drift currents into being. Disturbing elements, many in number, may have had a hand in the matter. So soon as one part of the sea surface becomes warmer than another part, movements are set going. The heavy cold water sinks, the light warm water rises, and streams are started from one place to the other. There are also countless rivers pouring into the ocean, helping to upset its equilibrium. Heavy downpours of rain raise the level of sea here or there, inducing more currents. But these are lesser causes. It is now recognized as a fact beyond question that the main power in starting and sustaining ocean currents is that of wind and in the matter. So soon as one part of the sea surface becomes warmer than another part, movements are set going. The heavy cold water sinks, the light warm water rises, and streams are started from one place to the other. There are also countless rivers pouring into the ocean, helping to upset its equilibrium. Heavy downpours of rain raise the level of sea here or there inducing more currents, but these are lesser causes. It is now recognized as a fact beyond question that the main power in starting and sustaining ocean currents is that of wind.